0: Good morning again. It is uh, certainly a great joy for me to get to stand up here this morning and to look out across this room and see so many of you all smiling faces as I have the privilege to open up God's word and preach to you all this morning. However, before I call your all's attention to the text that we're going to be looking at, let me just take this brief opportunity to say, uh, on behalf of my wife Rachel and I, uh, that you know though we've really only been locals here in Bloomfield for about. Uh, three short months. I have to say your warmth, your kindness, and your all's generosity has uh, really made it feel like we have been here for much longer than three months. And so uh, on behalf of the two of us, let me just say a sincere and heartfelt thank you all for the way that you all have welcomed us, really not only into this wonderful church, but also into this great community. We have really enjoyed getting settled in here and uh, getting to know so many of you all. And we really are eager and looking forward with great expectation to what the Lord will do uh, in and through us and the ways he will grow us alongside of you all as we serve this church together. And so let me just say again, thank you all for the way that you've helped make this transition so seamless. We really are looking forward to the months and the years ahead. And so uh, with that said, if you have your copy of God's Word with you this morning, I want to invite you to turn with me to the book of the Bible that we're going to be beginning and that we will continue our way through as I have the opportunity to preach here. And that is the book of First John. The book of First John. As you're turning there, I'll just remind you of what a, uh, a middle school student said to me rather humorously years ago when I asked him what his favorite book of the Bible was. He looked at me and he said, you know, Jacob, I really love the Gospel of John, but I think that little John's my favorite. And of course, what he meant by little John was, in fact, the epistle of 1 John, because it is one of the little letters that the Apostle John wrote. And so regardless of what you call it, we're, we're going to be calling it during our time together is 1 John as we make our way through this small but impactful uh, little book together. Uh, before we do that, though, perhaps a quick rationale for why I've chosen to preach through this book as the first book I preached through here at Bloomfield to be uh, somewhat helpful. Uh, late last fall, when I was here for my interview weekend, which I believe was uh, the last weekend of November, several of you all joined my wife Rachel and I for a Q&A session uh, in the gym during that Saturday nights. And among the various different uh, fun and intriguing and somewhat interesting and unexpected questions I can remember being peppered with that night, there was one question in particular I remember being asked. I believe it was from Brother Gary Hayden who raised his hand and he said to me, you know, Jacob, if you ever had the opportunity to preach through a book of the Bible, what one book would you want to preach through? And I can remember exactly how I responded to him uh, that night. I said, you know, if I ever had the chance, if Pastor Richard ever gave me the opportunity to preach through a book of the Bible here." I think it would have to be the book of 1 John. Because 1 John, in my mind, perhaps more than any other book in the New Testament, has a way of putting steel in our spines and giving us the insurance that we indeed do have eternal life and unbroken fellowship with the God of heaven. And so I shared that with him, not knowing if that opportunity would ever come my way, but here we are three and a half, four months later, and that very opportunity has in fact come my way. And so in the interest of being a man of my word, and to hopefully provide for you all that same comforting assurance that believers have gleaned from this book for centuries upon centuries. This morning, we are going to be beginning the first of many messages through this powerful little book known as First John. And so with that introduction out of the way, I want to invite you all to stand with me now, if you're able to do so. As I read for us the first four verses of First John together, and these first four verses really serve as the prologue to this entire letter, And so this morning we're looking at 1 John uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. And starting in verse 1, this is what the Apostle John writes. He says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testified to it, and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Let's pray together. Well, Father in heaven, we come to you this morning so that our joy might be complete by looking at your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, as we come here Sunday after Sunday, we know that there are many things that we can say. There are many things that we can sing about. There are many things that we can discuss together, but none of them surpass your son, Jesus Christ. And none of them are greater than the Savior who died on the cross for our sin. And so this morning, as we look at his face and as we study him at the beginning of this letter, Lord, I pray that you would open up our minds to perceive wonderful things in your word, that we would see your son, Jesus, for who he really is, and that through studying him, Lord, we would be emboldened to go out and be a witness for the gospel that he came to proclaim and to make possible for us. And so as we study this book, Lord, I pray that we would be encouraged, that we would be edified, and that we would be sharpened together in our witness and in our discipleship with you. And so we say all these things in Jesus' matchless name. Amen. Y'all may be seated. If you're taking notes, then the label that I've given to our message this morning is confessing the true Christ. Confessing the true Christ. If you are someone who has spent really any length of time studying the New Testament, then you've probably realized by now that there are about as many different styles of writing displayed in the New Testament as there are authors of Scripture who have written these various different books. For example, if you are someone with a type A personality, you probably find yourself drawn to and appreciating the writing styles of biblical authors such as the Apostle Paul or Dr. Luke, as Pastor Richard likes to Uh, Refer to him as we read biblical authors like these names that I've just mentioned we quickly realize that they are very linear in their writing styles Uh, Their logic seems to pour forth almost seamlessly from point A to point B to point C It's almost as with each new chapter that they write They're adding an additional rung in the ladder that they are ascending in their logical argument And so as we read these types of authors We quickly realize that they tend to be much more rational and much more calculated In nature. However, when we come to the epistle of 1st John, we see something of an almost entirely different nature. It doesn't take long until we quickly notice that the Apostle John bears almost no similarities whatsoever to these authors like Paul or Luke. In fact, one pastor I read recently on this matter said that if Paul writes like a lawyer arguing a case in court, then John writes like a father who is speaking to his children, emphasizing himself again and again and again. In other words, where the Apostle Paul is linear, uh, John tends to be more circular. Where the Apostle Paul is building a clear argument in a certain case, John tends to be emphasizing certain themes and repeating himself over and over again. And so because of that, one of the keys to understanding the book of 1 John is to recognize these certain key themes that he emphasizes time and time again in his letter. The certain points that he comes back to and rehashes over and over throughout this little letter. And so this morning, as we kind of are at the outset of our study and sort of stand at the base of this mountain known as First John, I think it's important for us to ask the question, what are these key themes that John tends to emphasize again and again? What is the heartbeat behind this letter? What are the foundational blocks that he is concerned to set in view of his audience? In other words, if we were to ask John, what was the purpose for why you wrote this letter, what would he say? Well, it's often been said that the great purpose statements of the book of 1 John, and you might jot this down, is found in the 13th verse of the 5th chapter where John writes, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. K-N-O-W, know. One of the unique features about this letter is that John uses this little word know, not five times, not ten times, Not 15 times, not 20 times, not 30 times, but 40 different times we see him use this word, no. And because of the repetition with which we see John use this word, it is rather obvious that the purpose for which John has written this book is so that his readers would know beyond a shadow of a doubt that they indeed have eternal life. In fact, it has been said before that if the gospel of John was written so that we can know how we might be saved, then the epistle of 1 John was written so that we might know that we have been saved. And so as we look at this book, we quickly notice that John has a pastor's heart. And as a pastor, he does not want those who are truly Christ to go on wandering in doubt about where they stand with the Lord. He does not want them to be crippled in their faith and lacking the vitality that is oftentimes the result of navel-gazing and doubt about whether we are in the kingdom or or out of the kingdom. However... At the same time, and perhaps one of the most comforting features of this letter, is that John seems to unreservedly acknowledge and recognize that there still remains a category of Christians who are truly saved, yet lack this assurance of their salvation. Christians who, in fact, will one day be told, Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Yet, in the meantime, are currently living, as Pastor Stephen Lawson once put it, in continual doubt as to whether they are the missionary or the mission field. (laughs) And John does not want this to be the case. He recognizes that the only thing worse than lacking the assurance of your salvation is having a false assurance of your salvation. And so throughout this letter, we see him put before us various different marks by which we might test ourselves to see whether or not we are in the faith and whether or not we have really been born again by this imperishable seed that God has planted within our hearts. And so this is a book about assurance. It is a book about comfort. It is a book about keeping the main thing the main thing. And so John realizes that if we are ever going to have a true biblical assurance about our salvation, then we must start where all true Christianity starts, and that is with the person of Jesus Christ. As we make our way through this book, one thing that will become abundantly clear is that if we're going to have the assurance of our salvation, we must first have an assurance about the person who has accomplished that salvation. If we go wrong here, then we are sure to go wrong everywhere. If we get this question wrong, it really does not matter what other questions we get right. The Bible is unwaveringly clear at this point. Jesus is the sum and the substance of our salvation. If we don't have Christ, we don't have Christianity. In fact, it can well be said that a Christianity that works without Christ is not Christianity at all. If we were to take all that the Bible teaches about Christianity and boil it and reduce it down into one word, that one word would be Christ. And so it is imperative. It is vital. It's essential. It's necessary that we get it right when it comes to the person of Jesus Christ. And so unsurprisingly, this is exactly where John begins in this letter he begins by setting before his readers a crystal clear Christology. This is our true north, our, our fundamental starting point on our pilgrimage to true, authentic, biblical assurance. And so in the verses that we're going to be looking at today, verses 1 through 4, which, as I've said, really serve as the sort of prologue to this letter, what we're going to see is John emphasized three non-negotiables that all true Christians must confess and believe about Jesus Christ if we are going to know him as our personal Lord and Savior. And so these three points are what we are going to spend the remainder of our time working through this morning as we walk through this doctrinally rich text together. And so, uh, beginning with point one there on your handout, the first truth that you're going to see John set before us this morning is that if we are ever going to acquire an assurance of our salvation, then first, uh, we must confess the eternal existence of Christ. We must confess the eternal existence of Christ. Take your Bibles and look back with me, starting in verse 1. And I want you to notice the way that John begins this letter by setting the subject of his letter before the eyes of his readers. And he does so by saying, that which was from the beginning. That which was from the beginning. In other words, what John says here is, look, what I am writing about to you today is not something that just came into existence a few years ago. This is not just some new fad. And this is not just breaking news. The person that I am about to tell you about is not listed on the up-and-coming rising stars list. You're not going to find his name in New York Times catalog of people to watch out for in 2023. No, no, the person I am writing to you about in this letter predates time. He predates humanity. In fact, John says, he predates creation itself. That which was from the beginning, John says. Right out of the gate, we are really brought face-to-face with a crucial component of our profession as believers. And that is to say that Jesus Christ has existed eternally from before the foundation of the world. He has existed before time began. Now, of course, someone here may be wondering silently to themselves as I say that, well, how do we know for sure that the person John is referring to here is, in fact, the Son of God? How do we know that this is talking about Jesus Christ? In other words, how can we know that he is not simply referring to the Father or to the Spirit? Which, to be honest, is in fact a fair question, because if you haven't noticed, nowhere in the first two verses of this text do we see Jesus' name explicitly mentioned. And in fact, in verse 3, once we do finally see Jesus' name mentioned, it's only mentioned in reference to the fellowship that we have with the Father, which is through his Son, Jesus Christ. And so because of that, that really naturally and rightly begs the question, how can we be sure about who it is, that John is referring to here. Let's put it another way. How can we know who is the that which, which was from the beginning? Well, I think that two points can really be made here that give us confidence that this is, in fact, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, of whom John is here describing. The first clue is found in verse 2. Look back with me in your Bibles at verse 2. John writes, The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testified to it. And proclaim to you the eternal life, and then here comes the key phrase, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. In other words, whoever this eternal life is that John is referring to, he plainly tells us here that this life was with the Father. And so, right out of the gate, that rules out the possibility of the subject here being the Father himself, because notice, John does not say that this eternal life was the Father, but rather that this eternal life was with the Father. And so, if that's the case, then this leaves us with the possibility of the subject here being either the Son of God or the Spirit of God. But again, as we look back at this text, we quickly realize that this cannot be referring to the Spirit of God either, because later in verse 1, John repeatedly talks about the subject here being one whom he and others have heard of and have seen and have touched with their hands and so on and so forth, which, as we know, is not language we would use to describe our dealings and experiences and interactions with a spirit, but is rather language that we would use to describe uh, our interactions with a human person. And so with this, we are really led to believe that who John is talking about here when he says that which was from the beginning is none other than Jesus Christ himself. However, there's a second step that I think we can take here that really further supports this notion and this idea that this text is in fact talking about Jesus Christ And perhaps some of you here have already begun to notice this, as we've just spent a little bit of time in this text this morning, but that is simply to say that this text almost directly mirrors what John wrote about Christ in the opening prologue to his gospel. In fact, if you're able to, I want you to hold your spot right there in 1 John and flip back a few books to the opening chapter of the gospel of John. And I want to just kind of read for you these first few verses in the opening prologue to John's gospel, and I want you to notice the overwhelming resemblance between John chapter 1 and 1 John chapter 1. Here's what John writes in the first few verses of his gospel. He says, "...in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men." Now when you take this and you put it up against what John has written about here in 1 John chapter 1, it is almost undeniably clear that what John is talking about here is none other than the incarnate Word who had existed eternally with the Father. It is really as though when John writes in 1 John 1, 1, that which was from the beginning, he is simply referring his reader's attention back to that which he wrote about in John chapter 1 when he said, in the beginning was the Word. Essentially what he is saying here is, look, I've already told you in my gospel that in the beginning was the word. Now, all I'm doing here in this letter is simply referring you back to that word which was in the beginning. And his audience here would have recognized this. They would have likely already received a copy of his gospel as it was circulating around that region. And so when they read here that which was from the beginning, it would have triggered in their mind, oh yeah, I remember when John said, in the beginning was the word. That's just what we're talking about here. And of course, we know whenever the biblical authors mentioned the word in this sense, they do so unanimously as referring to Jesus Christ himself. Now, in the interest of not getting bogged down in the details, (laughs) I think it's important for us at this point to kind of press pause and to step back from all these grammatical gymnastics and kind of ask ourselves a personal question in light of all that we've just said. Because I'll remind you that the great danger for you and I is that we would always miss the forest because of the trees. (laughs) that we would always become so fixated on the details that we completely miss the God of the details. And as Christians, we know that whenever we read our Bibles, the goal is not that we would ever do so with cold and unmoved hearts, but rather as we open up God's word, it would stoke the embers of our hearts and move us to adoration and worship of the God who has inspired them. And so as we think about this passage from a personal standpoint, and as we consider the eternal existence of Jesus Christ, let's ask ourselves, what does this passage teach us? What application is there for us in this text? How does what we have just said intersect with and transform our lives in the here and now? Well, perhaps the clearest thing that this foundational truth reminds you and I of today is that Jesus Christ did not come to earth because he was lonely. Contrary to what the culture might want you and I to believe, Jesus Christ did not take on human flesh because he simply needed a friend, because he needed somebody to keep him company. No, no, what John tells us here, rather plainly, is that this eternal life was not without company, but was rather with the Father. Jesus Christ did not exist eternally as a party of one. (laughs) Rather, what the Bible tells us here, and what good systematic theology would reinforce to us, is that the Son of God was in perfect harmony with the Father. And he enjoyed perfect fellowship with him, through the Spirit, for all eternity past. And when we consider that, we quickly realize that Jesus Christ was not lacking anything. (laughs) And so the practical implication for you and I this morning is to realize that unless one of us here were ourselves from the beginning, then our job is to worship him who was from the beginning. We are to sing his praises. We are to worship his holy name. This is the beautiful Savior that we come here Sunday after Sunday after Sunday to sing about, to pray to, and to hear preached of. This is the reason why we gather he is worthy of our worship. The Bible tells him, tells us for from him and to him and through him are not just some things, but are all things. That which was from the beginning, John says. And the recognition of this fact, from John's vantage point at least, is the first and vital step for you and I to gaining true assurance. We must confess and acknowledge that Jesus Christ is co-equal and co-eternal with the Father. But as we'll see, John has more to say. He's not done adding to the wonder and the glory of his subject, and so he goes on. He adds even more color to this canvas that he has been painting and weaving together here. And not only, he says, must we confess the eternal existence of Christ, but secondly, we notice, we must confess the physical nature of Christ. Now look back with me again at verse 2, and notice this extraordinary claim that John makes about this life that had existed for all eternity past. He says, the life was made manifest. And then later on, at the end of the same verse, he he reiterates this statement, And he even further adds that this life was made manifest to us. In other words, what John is trying to hammer into the minds of his readers with this remarkable statement is that the invisible God had become visible. That he who was for so many hundreds, if not thousands of years unseen, was now seen that God had become man and had revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ. And when we consider this, again, we are confronted with another crucial component of our confession and our belief in Jesus Christ. And that is simply to say that Jesus Christ was not created, but rather, he was revealed. Now, we don't really have the time to get into uh, the weeds of this right now, but let me just take a moment to mention that around this same period that John was writing this letter, there were various heretical groups that were going around the region and sowing seeds of discord and division and confusion amongst the local congregations of believers. And the message that they were proclaiming was simply to say that Jesus Christ was created and had not existed eternally. That rather than being an eternal being, Jesus was simply a created being. In fact, later on, we will read in 1 John where he talks about they went out from us because they were not of us. If they were of us, they would have remained among us. And with that, we are led to believe that a part of that group that had apostatized were those who began to deny the eternal existence of Jesus Christ and simply said, oh, he was just created in time like the rest of us. But what John is implying here when he uses this word made manifest is not to say that Jesus was created, but rather what he is implying here and what he is declaring is that Jesus was simply revealed. The idea that is really captured in this word, made manifest, could be thought of in similar terms to the function of a veil that a bride would wear on her wedding day. Now, I don't think that brides really wear veils anymore, but at a point in the not-too-distant past, this was a very common practice. Maybe some of you all wore a veil on your wedding day. And as we know, the purpose of a veil was that when it was lifted from that bride's face, it was not as though in that moment somehow magically her face was created, but rather in that moment her face was revealed. It was made manifest. Her, 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 her soon-to-be husband was now able to perceive that which he could not formerly perceive. Or you could think about this term, made manifest, along the lines of a, a baby being born. When that baby is finally delivered after long hours of labor, it is not as though in that moment in the delivery room that life was all of a sudden created. (laughs) But rather, what was happening is that this life that had begun at a point in the much distant past was rather in that room being revealed. It was being made manifest. These new excited parents could now perceive the life that had already existed. And this is really the point that John is making here. He is saying that with the physical incarnation of Jesus Christ, God was being revealed to mankind. that The veil that had once hidden God from us was now lifted, and he was now able to be fully perceived in the person of Jesus Christ. Other biblical authors reinforce this exact same idea in their writings. For example, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, we read, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. In Colossians 1.15, as we already read earlier in this service, Paul writes, He is the image of the invisible God. And then in verse 19, For in him, not some, not just a lot, not just a good measure, but for in him all, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And this, of course, is exactly the point that John is emphasizing in the prologue to his letter here. However, one of the things that you and I can appreciate about John's writing is that he is not content to just leave his arguments in the abstract and in the intangible realm. But rather, he goes to great lengths to add convincing proofs for his arguments by appealing to the first-hand experiences that he and the other apostles had had with Christ during his earthly ministry here on earth. Look back with me again in your Bibles at verse 1, and just notice the abundance of sensory language that John uses here to describe his relationship with Jesus Christ. And as we walk through these, if you're able to, I would just encourage you to underline or to circle these phrases one by one so that you can note this emphasis when you return to this text in your own personal study. First of all, we see John say in verse one that this eternal life, which was from the beginning, was something which we have heard. In other words, John says, we literally heard his voice as he walked among us. Just as you are hearing me speak this morning, John says, we heard him speak to us. This was not just a figment of our imagination, John says. This is not just, oh, I was reading my Bible the other day, and I feel like God told me. No, 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 no. We literally heard God's real, tangible, and audible voice speaking to us in the person of Jesus Christ. But not only have we heard him, John says, but furthermore, and you'll see this next, he says, we have seen him with our eyes. (laughs) I laid my eyes on him, John says. I am an eyewitness to his physical nature. He was here. I saw the miracles he did. I saw all the signs he performed. This is not just uh, someone else telling us what they saw with their eyes. No, this is what we saw with our eyes. And we heard him. We saw him. But if that's not enough, John says, let me just drive the nail into the coffin with this final proof. He says, we touched him with our hands. In other words, John says, Jesus was as real as, as a handshake. This was not just some ghost walking around. This was not just some illusion causing people to rub their eyes trying to make sure that what they were seeing was real. No, John says, he had flesh on. We could feel him. John says, I laid up against his breast at the Last Supper. Upon the resurrection, our brother Thomas placed his finger into his side. I don't know how else to put it to you, John says. What I'm trying to tell you is that Jesus Christ is God in human flesh. Jesus is God with skin on. We heard him. We saw him. We have touched him. I don't think it's a coincidence here that John appeals to our three highest and most reliable senses. As we look at this, we quickly realize that the physical nature of Jesus Christ is not something that John is willing to open up for debate. There were no apostolic think tanks back in the day trying to iron out this issue. No, no, John is absolutely certain about the physical nature of Jesus Christ. He is not just bull, He's not just dogmatic about this. He is being bulldogmatic <laughs> at this point. And the reason for this, I believe is because John wants you and I to know something today beyond a shadow of a doubt. And that is simply to say that Jesus Christ is real. <laughs> he really lived. <laughs> he really died on the cross and he was really raised three days later back to eternal life. Brothers and sisters, our faith is not just an illusion. This is not just some fairy tale that we come together every Sunday morning to discuss and to talk about, to boost our self-esteem, to give us a pat on the back, to go out and live a better moral lives. 1 Timothy one fifteen, Paul says, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Now, we don't come together each week simply to worship the theory of salvation. We don't come together each week simply simply to worship the idea of salvation or the plan of salvation. The reason we are here this morning is to worship the man of salvation and that man has a name and his name is Jesus Christ. This is what John is declaring to us here. Well, that brings us then to our final point this morning that John wants us to see not only must we confess the eternal existence of Christ, not only must we confess the physical nature of Christ, but finally, we must confess the central role of Christ. We must confess the central role of Christ. Now again, as we look at this passage, I think that this is something that we see John emphasize both implicitly and explicitly. In other words, I think we can see John declare the central role of Christ both in the words that he does say and in the words that he does not say. For instance, there is a sense in which We see John declare the centrality of Jesus here by the sheer fact alone that he completely bypasses the customary greeting that we would expect of him and that we see exhibited in almost every other New Testament letter. Look back at verse 1 and notice that when we begin reading this letter, we don't read the whole, uh, I, John, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, dot, 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 dot. No, instead, John just comes right out of the gate swinging. (laughs) He gets right to the point. He clearly feels... No obligation whatsoever to shine the light on himself or to hand over his apostolic credentials before giving his lecture on Christology. He basically comes out running 100 miles an hour and he says, in effect, I'm here to talk to you about Jesus Christ. Let's get to it. (laughs) And while this might seem a bit unusual and perhaps somewhat abrupt in our 21st century context, I think that with it, there is a point of application for us even today. And that is simply to say that we really all could use a dose of John's evangelistic urgency here. We really could all use a whole lot less talking about ourselves and a whole lot more talking about Jesus Christ. Perhaps some of you here have heard the name of George Whitfield before. George Whitfield was considered by many to be the leading figure of the First Great Awakening during the 18th century revival alongside of Jonathan Edwards. However, despite being primarily known for being the prolific preacher that he was, and for having preached to over a million different hearers throughout his 30-year itinerant ministry, uh, George Whitefield was at the same time known to be a man of fervent one-on-one personal evangelism. In fact, his late biographer, Arnold Dallimore, once quoted him for having often said rather zealously, "'God forbid that I should ever travel with anybody for 15 minutes without speaking to them about Jesus Christ.'" (laughs) Now, when we hear words like those, our initial tendency might be to think, well, you know, that that sounds a bit extreme. (laughs) And maybe it sounds a little bit legalistic. (laughs) Brothers and sisters, I would remind you this morning, however, we are all evangelists of something. We are all ambassadors of something. (laughs) We all have something that we find ourselves talking about within the first 15 minutes of speaking with somebody else. Perhaps for you, what you find yourself gravitating toward in conversation is talking about sports. It's a particular sports team. It's UK basketball. It's UofL football. It's probably not UofL football. (laughs) Or perhaps for you, it is your children. The various activities on the agenda, the schedule you're trying to keep up. I'm just trying to keep your head above water. Children are running me crazy. (laughs) Or perhaps it's another family member. Or perhaps for you, it's your job. Just so busy at work, I'm so anxious, I'm so stressed out. Deadlines, projects, meetings, dot, dot, dot. I gotta travel here next weekend, I just got back from this. Or perhaps for you, it's the most deceptive one of all, and that is simply that you find yourself talking about our church. Look, none of these things that I just mentioned are are bad things. The point, however, is that none of them are the main thing. These are all secondary things to him who is primary. I'm convinced that the devil would have you and I talk about just about anything else so long as we don't talk about Jesus Christ. (laughs) Go ahead, talk about your children. Talk about work. Talk about your family. Talk about church. Talk about VBS. Talk about Sunday school. I'll let you talk about all these things, he says. Just make me a deal. Sign this contract right here that you will never say the name of Jesus Christ. (laughs) If John models anything at all for us here, it's that we are to say the name of Jesus Christ. (laughs) We are to be ambassadors of Jesus Christ, and we are to be like John the Baptist and be fingers pointing in the wilderness, making clear the way of Him who is to come. Jesus is to be the central figure in our hearts, in our lives, and pouring forth from our lips. He is primary; everything else is secondary. Well, that brings us then to the rather explicit statement we see John make here as he concludes this passage. And so I want you to look back with me one final time now in your Bibles, at verses 3 through 4, as we wrap up our time together. And this really brings us to what is the climactic point that this entire passage has been building toward all along. John writes, "...that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ." And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. The key phrase that I want to highlight for you as we conclude this morning is found in those two little words, we proclaim. Throughout this entire prologue, there is a sense in which John has been trekking his way up this Christological mountain. And now that he has sort of reached the summit, it is as though he looks back down to all the ground that he has just covered, all the glory that he has just ascribed to his wonderful subject, Jesus Christ. And he says, look, this is what we proclaim. <laughs> we are not here to proclaim politics, John says. We are here to proclaim Christ. <laughs> we are not here to proclaim the culture, John says. We are here to proclaim Christ. We are not here to proclaim social media or the latest headlines. No, 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 we are here to proclaim Christ. <laughs> We're not here to proclaim public school, private school, or homeschool. We're here to proclaim Jesus Christ. And the reason for this, John says, is simple. It's so that you too may have fellowship with us. Listen, if you are a Christian here this morning, then you know this to be true. There is no fellowship apart from Jesus Christ. Sure, you may be able to be friends with somebody, have a cordial relationship with somebody who does not know Jesus. But we know that we cannot experience that true, sweet, and authentic fellowship that we only know with those who know Jesus Christ. I imagine that you have experienced this to some degree in your own life. There are people in this very church who you sit next to in those pews every single Sunday morning that you are closer to than you are with your very own biological family members. There are people that you have perhaps spent just one day with or a few hours in a convert with years ago, who love the Lord Jesus Christ, who surprisingly, you feel closer to than certain people that you have known for decades in your life who do not know Jesus Christ. John says we should not be surprised by this. He says, because indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Perhaps you're here this morning, and as you've listened to all that we have just said about Jesus Christ, if you were honest with yourself, and you just took a raw assessment of your life, you would have to say, you do not know this Jesus. You have not bowed your knee to him as Lord. You have not confessed him to be your Savior. If that's you, then on behalf of everyone else in this room, let me just say to you, come to Christ this morning. Do not delay. There is more mercy in Christ than there is sin in your heart. He delights to save sinners just like you. Perhaps you feel, oh, well, you don't know the sin I've done. (laughs) You don't know how how far I've gone. Yeah, I know his grace is great, but I think I have probably removed myself a little bit too far from it. I've been not just a little bit wretched. I've been very, very wretched. If that's you, well, then good. Because this same Jesus said in his word, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. You are a perfect candidate for his grace to be put on display this morning. As John said in verse 4, We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. There is nothing that would make the believers in this church more filled with joy this morning than to see another prodigal come back home. And so this is the invitation for you today. Christ says, come, receive the free gift of salvation that is found by my blood poured out on the cross. For the believers in this room, let me just leave you with this final application. This text reminds us of the Important truth that while there will be many in heaven who during their time on earth differed regarding their views on baptism or differed regarding their views on the end times or differed regarding their views on church membership, the Lord's Supper, dot, 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 fill in the blank. There will be none in heaven who differed regarding their views on the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the God man. He lived the perfect life. He died the perfect death in the place of sinners, and he was raised again for our justification. This is where all assurance must begin, with a true confession of the true Christ, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. With that said, let me invite you all to bow your heads with me as I close our time together in prayer.